I didn't hear that? Oh, okay. You got me dressing here? <laughs> anyway, today we're going to look at some of the anthropological perspectives on the implications of culture and some of the ways in which culture is consequently studied by anthropology. So to begin with, we're going to address this broad topic of cultural relativism and look at how anthropologists not only see it as being a reality about the nature of culture, but ultimately a methodology that we use for understanding other cultures and what's important to them. We'll also examine a concept that is sort of the, uh, the evil twin of cultural relativism, which is ethnocentrism. And we'll look at why it is such a ubiquitous aspect of human culture and why it's important to recognize it as being a normative aspect rather than a deviant aspect of human behavior. We'll examine one of the uh, implications of cultural relativism, which is basically a set of challenges to the concepts of objectivity. And we'll talk about absolute versus relative objectivity as two different ways of understanding the implications of cultural relativism. And we'll look at how anthropology addresses this relative objectivity through the concepts of emic and edic approaches. And this will go back to the concepts that we introduced in the first day, basically the ethnographic and the ethnological or cross-cultural methods that anthropologists use. And we'll see them as being adaptations to this realization about the nature of objectivity. So we'll elaborate upon what is ethnography, how is it done, We'll look at the ethnological approach, the cross-cultural method, and I'll give you an example that illustrates why it is that the cross-cultural method is important to answer certain questions. And this lecture, this segment will wrap up with a consideration of anthropology's multi-method approaches. Anthropologists are often pigeonholed as just doing ethnography and it's seen as being very subjective. And we'll see that the ethnographic approach is really just a foundation for using a wide range of methods that are also employed in the other social sciences. Cultural relativism is one of the aspects of anthropology's approach that's not only really at the very foundation of anthropology as a discipline, uh, but also a perspective that is often challenged by other disciplines. Uh, this challenge to the anthropological concepts of cultural relativism are often based on a misunderstanding and a mischaracterization of cultural relativism as moral relativism. Moral relativism is a position that basically there are no defensible moral positions. Every moral position is subjective and there's no grounds to prefer one over the other. And we'll see that cultural relativism doesn't lead to that conclusion. What cultural relativism is a recognition of is a reality. It's a reality that people view their worlds from their own cultural perspective. That in essence, people's understanding of the world is relative to what their cultures have taught them. One of the ways in which anthropologists also understand cultural relativism has to do with people's behavior. And the idea here is that people's behavior is relative to their culture and that it makes sense in their own cultural context. So we might think that what someone in another culture does really doesn't make any sense. It seems crazy or stupid. But what we're doing is failing to consider what their cultural context is and why a certain pattern of behavior might make more sense in their cultural context. These recognitions about the relativity of people's behavior 
then becomes a methodology that anthropologists use. Basically taking the perspective that the best approach to understanding another culture is to use their perspectives, to employ this emic approach, which is to say that if we look at it in terms of their own cultural context, their behavior likely makes sense, even if it doesn't make sense to us. For instance, postpartum sexual taboos. Some cultures, people have a practice where um, a, a man and a woman don't have sex for two to five years after the birth of a child. Now, to most of us, it's like, what? Are you crazy? What did you get married for in the first place? And you want me to be abstinent for how long? This doesn't seem to make any sense. I mean, how, why would a culture even want to do this? Well, from our culture's point of view, it's really difficult to make sense of it. Uh, but when we look at cultures that have a long postpartum sexual taboo, they have a variety of features that help make sense of the practice. For instance, they tend to be cultures that are hunter-gatherer societies. Uh, basically, everything you own, you take with you from place to place. You know, a woman carries her baby everywhere, day in and day out, and as she walks dozens of miles a day from one site to the next. Um, the last thing she wants to do is take care of two babies at once. Furthermore, when we look at these societies, uh, they are often typified by having uh, low protein resources. Uh, and the most important protein resource for an uh, infant is mother's milk. And the best way to make sure that mother's milk is available for that infant is she doesn't get pregnant again. So when we look at all the features associated with societies that practice these prolonged postpartum sexual taboos, we can start to make sense of why it makes good sense for them to do this. Uh, it doesn't make sense from our culture's perspective, but we're not living in their world. We're not faced with their constraints. So cultural relativism has also another set of implications, and that is to say it really implies ethnocentrism, which is to say that people view the world from their own particular cultural perspectives. Now, this ethnocentrism, in essence, a kind of ethnic or cultural centeredness, is often something that's criticized as being inappropriate behavior. Uh, anthropologists would suggest a different understanding of ethnocentrism, one that suggests that ethnocentrism really is normal and an inevitable part of how human beings come to know the world. It's normal that we evaluate the world from our own culture's point of view, an ethnic or cultural centeredness. I mean, after all, what else could we use to evaluate the world with? Until we learn other cultures' perspectives, the only thing we have is our own ethnic-centered perspectives. Of course, ethnocentrism normally goes beyond that to include the assumption that one's own culture's point of view is superior to others. So ethnocentrism goes beyond the inevitable of using one's culture as a point of reference to the assumption that that point of reference is superior and that it should be used as a universal set of standards and that everybody ought to conform to that. So there's certainly aspects of ethnocentrism that we can see as being problematic and certainly um, a, a set of assumptions that produce difficulties in relating to people of other cultures but we have to recognize that being ethnocentric is normal. This perspective has a set of implications for two other uh, bad words, if you will, prejudice and discrimination. Uh, normally, if I ask my classes, you know, oh, okay, I want to see who in here is prejudiced. Raise your hands. 
Now, normally you'll get two or three people out of a class of 100 raising their hands. And then I say, look, get them up. Everybody is prejudiced. Everybody practices discrimination. We're told we're not supposed to, but like culture itself, having prejudgments about the world and acting upon differences, discerning differences and acting upon them is one of the inevitable consequences of culture. It is normal and natural that we prejudge the world according to the categories and criteria and values that we've learned and that we act upon those. Now, many people feel that they you know, don't do that. For instance, they say, I'm not prejudiced. I treat everybody the same. Okay, well, what do you mean, the same? Where does the same come from? Is this really your cultural assumptions about how people should be treated? If you're a woman, would you be happy if your polygamous husband treated you the same as his other 17 wives? Would this be fine with you? Or would you say, wait, I don't like this sameness. <laughs> so what is inevitable in cultures is that we make distinctions. We make uh, points about treating people differently. You know, your grandmother's not going to be happy if you treat her the same as a bag lady. You know, your girlfriend's not going to be happy if you treat her the same as your mother. Okay? We make distinctions about people and we treat them differently based upon who they are within our own cultures. And we you know, often do that with respect to people outside of our culture as well. Although when it comes to treating people outside of our culture, we often are doing it more based upon stereotypes rather than an understanding of what their cultural characteristics are. So what anthropology brings is a perspective that says prejudice, discrimination, ethnocentrism, these are normative. They are from culture. Every culture creates these dynamics. And what's important is to recognize those, to begin to understand how they affect our ability to relate to others, and to modify them where they're impediments to effective relations. Uh, but we're not going to altogether give up our assumptions, our prejudgments about the world, and acting upon some sense of difference. This aspect of ethnocentrism, treating people outside of our group as different, is referred to as an in-group, out-group phenomenon. And it has a variety of different mod uh, manifestations, including a whole range of ethnocentric syndromes, where we treat people in our group different than we treat people outside of our group. Uh, this may be an inevitable part of human nature that has deep roots in the animal world. Uh, for instance, different bands of chimpanzees will often attack one another and kill weak members of each other's groups. You know, they're all chimps, but you're from a different group than I am, and that makes a difference that's important. So we can modify those predispositions, but we're in a much better position to modify them if we recognize them for what they are rather than denying them and acting as if we're prejudice-free. There are some implications of this recognition of ethnocentrism and cultural relativism as sort of twins of the human perceptions of the world. One of the implications goes head-to-head -head with our notions about objectivity, notions, for instance, of absolute objectivity that are part of science. Scientists normally don't think that they're knowledge is, is relative or subjective, they tend to think that they've acquired absolutely objective knowledge. But there are aspects of science that has recognized these notions of relativity. Indeed, some people think that anthropology's embrace of 
cultural relativity and cultural relativism was really initiated by Einstein's recognitions of relativity. Not only does Einstein's relativity theory basically say that you know, your perceptions are a function of where you are and where you are looking from, uh, but other aspects of science also bring in these relativity principles. For instance, Heisenberg, uh, several decades later, introduced the uncertainty principle that really called into question even objective observation within science. Briefly, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle says, if you're trying to measure some thing and take thing very loosely here, you can either figure out how much it weighs or where it's going. But if you figure out how much it weighs, you've changed where it's going. And if you look at where it's going, you have interacted with the system in a way that can fundamentally change its mass. So there is uncertainty in our ability to know the world. And Heisenberg's principles were taken to a lot of other extremes that pointed out the relativity of knowledge, the notion that when we interact with a system, even a physical system, we modify it in some ways. We inevitably impose some of our influences on the system in studying it. So anthropologists would probably feel very comfortable with most of Einstein's and Heisenberg's relativity principles, although uh, many bench scientists uh, try to ignore them and act as if they're not relevant. Um, but there's also a large science of the scientific process and studies of subjectivity in science and studies of traditions in science that have more to do with personalities than with objective facts. And of course, we know that in science, many times theories will persist long beyond their you know, usefulness because of powerful figures in the field who support them. So what this leads to is the concept of relative objectivity. It's not to say that we can't get some kind of more objective knowledge of the world, but what it does say is that all of our perspectives are somehow biased by our vantage points, biased by the perspectives that we take biased by the frameworks that we use. Uh, and the famous physicist, historian, sociologist Thomas Kuhn really helped promulgate this perspective in science, namely the idea that there are no culture-free points of view, that even science itself is based upon metaphysical assumptions, based upon certain kinds of values. For instance, science values things that can be counted versus things that can be you know, subjectively perceived. Uh, science values things that can be measured, you know, versus things that somehow have a more impressionistic quality. Uh, so science has a number of biases built into it. Science, you know, is biased in favor of theories that postulate material mechanisms. And this has been a long-standing aspect of science. For instance, when uh, Newton first introduced the theory of gravity, uh, he was laughed at by many scientists because gravity seemed like this really kind of occult, mysterious force out there. And it wasn't something that could be understood in physical terms. So the idea that science is a cultural activity, cultural construction, is in many ways central to the perspectives of anthropology and the social sciences in general. And it's based on a recognition that even the problems that scientists decide to study reflect what's important in their culture, rather than some absolutely objective criterion about what are the most important problems to study. And science as a cultural activity is reflected, for instance, in 
funding priorities that the federal government sets, uh, the kinds of principles that journals establish about what kinds of things they will and will not publish on, as well as a variety of other things that are part of the cultural context of science. So while we often think of science as being objective, what anthropology leads us to conclude is that there really are subjectivities built into the fundamental aspects of science. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't come to some agreement about what's out there. Anthropologists might prefer the term of uh, sort of intersubjective validation. You know, we both look at something and we both agree that it looks a certain way. But as we will see later, this doesn't mean that it's reality. For instance, in a very real sense, uh, when I asked you what colors are these curtains here, you're likely to say blue. Uh, but as I understand the, the psychophysics of light, those colors are everything except blue. They reflect blue and they keep all the other colors. What you see is what it's not. So this is just sort of an introduction to what we'll later talk about as naive empiricism, the belief that somehow our sensory apparatus gives us a, a valid uh, view of what the world is really like. So how does anthropology proceed in a world in which objectivity is relative? Well, we have two methods for approaching this. We introduced these in the first lectures, the ideas of ethnography and ethnology. Ethnography as the insider's perspective, the emic point of view, the way that people in a particular culture view reality is one of the approaches that anthropologists take to this relative objectivity. Basically saying, what's the objectivity that is presented by the people in this culture? How do they view reality? Keeping in mind that our objective as anthropologists is to understand somebody else's perspective, irrespective of whether we think it's right or wrong. One of the things that anthropologists need to do in order to get a better understanding of these insider perspectives is to develop a awareness of their own culture and their own cultural influences and how their own cultural categories may become imposed upon the studies of people in other cultures. So part of getting at other people's perspectives on the world involves becoming more aware of our own biases, our own assumptions, our own beliefs about the way the world is, so we can be more cognizant of their influences and try to keep them from interfering with our perceptions of others. Ethnology, or cross-cultural studies, provide us with an edict perspective, which is to say some kind of culturally transcendent point of view, a point of view that's based upon more than one particular culture's approach to understanding reality. We'll see that there are a couple of different ways in which anthropologists understand this idea of edict perspectives. But the fundamental assumption is that by considering more than one point of view, we develop a more valid basis for making generalizations about what is true. And this doesn't keep it from, in some sense, still being subjective. But what it does is move us from the perspectives of a single culture to some kind of cross-cultural perspective or point of view. Looking at these roots to these terms, emic and etic, can help give us an understanding about why they're important and what they reflect. The terms emic and etic actually come from linguistics, from phonemics and phonetics. So for instance, from an emic, a culturally specific perspective, we study a culture in terms of its own categories, its own beliefs, its own structure of reality. 
in linguistics, phonemics is the study of the sounds of one particular language. And different languages use different sounds. Uh, for instance, in um, Spanish, you have things like the R, Guerrero. You don't have the R in English. Different sound system in different languages. Spanish doesn't use the uh, words like which and that, the th and what. So Spanish speakers often have difficulty learning to make those sounds. It's not part of their phonemic system. Edict systems, universal systems, are based upon the notions of a phonetic system. And a phonetic system is basically a sound system that encompasses all the known sounds of human languages. So a phonetic system basically is a universally valid sound system. One point we would make here is that if you want to study the sounds of any one particular language, you don't need the phonetic system. You just need the system of sounds used in that language. And another point that we would make about these edict systems, while we might be inclined to view them as being you know, absolute truth, we know that they're not. Linguists who reconstruct ancient languages have come to the conclusion that there must have been certain sounds used in the past that are no longer part of the human language systems. They're not in our phonetic system because we don't know what they are. So it's not ultimate truth about the nature of linguistic production. It's just a truth that we've been able to construct at this point in time. So in this sense, the phonetic system represents one particular perspective on reality. It's a perspective that's derived from a variety of different cultural systems. And so we'll see within anthropology, there's actually two different views about these edict systems or edict systems. And we can kind of call them cultural points of view and materialist points of view. The cultural points of view would emphasize that all science systems are emic. Sometimes science itself, uh, ecological principles, biological principles are proposed as edict systems. And some anthropologists would call these imposed edict systems. Someone says biology should be the criteria, for instance, by which we uh, examine how other cultures understand anatomy. Western biology is a superior system. Others would say, well, not necessarily. Um, Western science might benefit from looking at other cultures' classification systems. For instance, is um, botany an exhaustive science of plant classification? Well, we might say, well, yeah, science has figured out what all the plants are. But if we turn to indigenous classification systems, sometimes we will discover that people in other cultures have understood the presence of species or subspecies that Western science hasn't caught up with yet. They actually know more than the edict system, and our scientific edict system will be expanded once more emic systems are brought into it. There are some people of a more materialist bent who would contend that science itself really is an objective truth. Uh, but I would view these as being a minority position within anthropology. Most anthropologists would contend that all of our systems of knowledge are ultimately in some sense emic, that they construct reality in a certain way derived from principles of our culture. And one good example of this would be um, understanding subatomic particles. Western scientists spend a long time trying to understand the fundamental building blocks of, of nature, 
And one of the things that they have come up with is the notion that when you start getting at smaller and smaller levels of resolution, things disappear. You no longer have particles, you have energy. Uh, and you no longer have particles, you have relationships. And you no longer have things, but you more have processes in becoming. And this recognition of the uh, sort of the paradoxes of our language has led some physicists to begin to look outside of the English language to find systems to describe subatomic reality. The English language is a very thing-oriented language. You probably told that every sentence has to have a subject, which is a thing, and a verb, and an object. And somehow those two things, the subject and the object, are going to be related. Well, not all languages are built on those principles. Uh, some languages are built more upon the principles of processes. And many Native American languages are like that. So for about a decade now, there have been regular meetings of theoretical physicists and Native American elders mediated by anthropological linguists who are trying to help the physicists understand how the conceptual frameworks of Native American languages might provide a better framework for thinking about subatomic processes. And since they're processes and not things, process-oriented languages often provide a more adequate descriptive framework. So this sort of reflects the anthropological approach. We try to seek combinations of emic and edic perspectives to make sense of the world. We enlarge our edic systems by adding in more emics, and we try to contextualize the emic, the particular, by understanding how a specific culture's framework and way of looking at the world may be related to the ways that people in other cultures also approach reality. So the ethnographic methods, sort of the stereotype of the anthropologist, is the foundation of the anthropological approach to understanding reality. Ethnography is basically a study of them, an ethnic group, people, the other. So ethno as ethnic, graphy as a written account. For anthropologists, these ethnographies have been based upon an intensive direct study of another culture, a long-term immersion in the lives of the people of that particular culture. One of the things that was a classic aspect of anthropology was the idea that the anthropologist should provide a comprehensive description of another cultural group. So this would include things as diverse as the ecology, the geography, the weather, the tools, the subsistence patterns, the economy, family life, kinship, politics, religion, cosmology, everything. So if you look at some of the old ethnographies, they'll literally have 20 or 30 different chapters. This was the classic approach of anthropology. Anthropologists today are much more likely to focus more narrowly, for instance, to just study family practices or just study gender roles or just study economic systems. But they nonetheless still adhere to this traditional point of view that whatever their specific focus is should be complemented by an understanding, for instance, of how family relates to politics and kinship and work, or how an economic system is related to subsistence and political structure and ideology. While we today don't emphasize providing these comprehensive accounts, we still emphasize the idea that 
whatever we understand about another culture has to be placed in its broader framework or context rather than just looking at the specific phenomena. So how do anthropologists go about their ethnography? Well, one of the classic ideas is that we do field work. We do our observations in the context of the people we want to study. We go do our observation in the natural setting and live among the people classically for a year or more. The traditional notion being that cultural activities vary across the seasons. So we try to look at what people do in everyday life and understand their behaviors in that context of everyday life. One of the key tools that anthropologists use are what are referred to as key informants. While we may talk to many different people in a culture, one of the principles is that we find people who are are particularly well prepared to not only explain their culture but communicate about that culture with the anthropologist. And in the context of doing ethnography, we attempt to place what people do, once again, in this broader cultural context to make sense of their behavior within the cultural system. One of the things that ethnography raises are a variety of ethical concerns. We as anthropologists will have impacts upon the people that we study. And sometimes these impacts can be devastating. Um, for instance, an anthropologist named Cora Dubow had worked among a people in the South Pacific in the 1930s. And she you know, told them stories about life in America and how wonderful it was. And they had a very positive opinion of the United States. Well, what's wrong with that? It might seem it will be an innocuous effect. But within a decade, the Japanese invaded and took over their island. And once the people there became aware of uh, the dynamics of this international conflict, these people in an island called the Lure, the headmen got together and had a discussion and decided, you know, we think we like the Americans better than the Japanese. And so they formed a delegation and went and approached the local Japanese commander and said, you know, we've thought about this and we decided we would rather be with the Americans instead of the Japanese. So he lined them all up and shot them. You know, we'd hardly think that our presence would do that, but yeah, I can't. Uh, one of the mentors I had in graduate school, I worked in Guatemala for many years. And one of the things that he discovered in the 1970s was that every year when he went back to the field, all his key informants from the last year were dead. Why? Well, the death squads basically sought out people that were, you know, interacting with foreigners and killed them. And so he eventually gave up doing research in Guatemala and later in his career refocused on Japan. It just didn't seem ethical to continue to engage in a research activity that put many people at risk. Anthropologists face concerns about confidentiality. Uh, when we describe other cultures, we may reveal aspects of their intimate workings. We may reveal the inequities within a system, the dominance of tyrants, the unequal distribution of resources. How do we protect the people that we write about so that they're not subject to criticism or attack within their own group or from other groups? Well, one of the things that anthropologists often do is to fictitiously characterize the people that they study. They may say, you know, this ethnography is based upon studying a small Native American group uh, of the Uto Aztecan family living in the southwestern United States. 
They don't even say whether it was Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California, whatever. They just, you know, let that generalization provide the context. And of course, you may be able to find out from them directly, but they may not put that in the publication. They may fictionalize people and fictionalize places in order to protect people. And of course, we always have the implications of politics. One of the things that happens to anthropologists is they often feel very strongly about the people that they work with. They want to protect them. They want to make sure that their concerns are being addressed. And consequently, they may get embroiled in politics. What happens if the national government wants to put in a hydroelectric project that's going to take away the water resources for this village or completely flood their farmlands? Does the anthropologist stand by and watch this happen? Do they organize an international protest against the national government? So anthropologists are often placed in, in delicate positions of trying to figure out how do we best represent the interest of the people that we've come to care about. And in essence, we engage a kind of public responsibility that we will elaborate upon later. But in essence, we have a public responsibility to the people that we study. We have to make sure that our actions do not detrimentally affect them. We have to make sure that whatever we do, it ends up being in the best interest of the people that we're concerned about. So this brings us to the notion that ethnography both has strengths and weaknesses. It's very good at getting us an understanding of the local picture, the on-the-ground reality. Uh, it's not very good at telling us what's universal about human behavior. It may be very good at getting to people's beliefs, what they think is true about the world. But, for instance, the Aztecs believed that they had to sacrifice human beings because if they didn't, their gods would destroy the world. Is this a good explanation of human sacrifice? Or did something else cause the Aztecs to take human sacrifice to an unprecedented level? Ethnography provides us with a kind of basis for understanding what's universal about humans and what's different. But it only provides us with a basis. It is a foundation from which we can begin to answer questions such as what features or characteristics are part of all cultures? And why are they part of all cultures? Is it because of biology or is it because of social influences? Later, for instance, we'll see that while there are cross-cultural similarities in how males and females are viewed as being different, some of these differences are clearly related to social effects the ways in which all cultures structure the socialization experiences of females. Of course, another thing that ethnography provides a basis for is understanding that some things that are universal, for instance, family systems, have very different forms. Why do some societies prefer polygyny, a man with many wives, whereas others prefer polyandry, where a woman may have more than one husband? Why do some cultures prefer monogamy? Is there something that predicts these different kinds of family forms? And why do some cultures have what we might consider to be idiosyncratic behaviors, things such as human sacrifice, or practices of, say, binding feet, or uh, binding children in cribs for a year or more? What allows us to understand these unusual forms of human behavior? This approach within anthropology is what we refer to as this cross-cultural method, or the ethnological approach. 
Another term that is used sometimes is the holocultural approach. We use data from lots of different cultures in order to try to develop some principles or generalizations about human behavior. Two of the most widely known sources of data for the cross-cultural method are the human relations area files, sometimes referred to as the RAF files, and the standard cross-cultural sample. The human relations area files is basically a text-based database in which information about a number of specific cultures is organized into more than 800 different categories. So, for instance, you could go to the category on warfare and the allure and find about everything that's known about the allure and warfare. Or go to the category on family and find out everything that's been published about the family among the allure. Or you can do the same thing for sibling rivalry or religion or any other topic within these 800 categories. And so then you can compare across different cultures to find differences. The RAF file in recent years has been updated and, and made computer friendly and now you can do online database searches within the human relations area files. The old form that I used in my dissertation was a bunch of microfiches where you stare through these little cameras at these little tiny images and then read all this data. What I think is perhaps the most important cross-cultural database is called the Standard Cross-Cultural Sample. And this was created back in the 1960s uh, based upon knowledge of more than 1,400 cultures around the world. And George Peter Murdoch and Doug White uh, selected 186 societies to be this sample. And they selected these societies to represent all the major geographic regions of the world, all the different linguistic groups of the world, all the different levels of cultural complexity, and even took cultures as far back in the past as they could find information on. So, for instance, the Romans in 111 uh, AD are in there, uh, Babylonia in 1750 BC are also part of this standard cross-cultural sample. And the beauty of the standard cross-cultural sample is that it's all coded data. So you've got all these variables, for instance, family form, and you read, you know, it's a nuclear family, it's a polygynous family, it's polyandrous family, it's you know this and this, and there's numbers associated with each one. So now you can, for instance, pull up all the data on families and pull up all the data on religion. And what types of religion exist? Is it animistic religion or polytheistic religions or monotheistic religions? Is there a relationship between family form and religious form? So the standard cross-cultural sample allows us to engage in a systematic examination of hypotheses and a systematic uh, study of what may be human universals. And in essence, it allows us to test hypotheses about human differences. For instance, do certain kinds of family forms make children more independent? Well, there's a bunch of data on psychological characteristics of children. Do certain kinds of political forms make it more likely that warfare occurs? And you can systematically examine these kinds of hypotheses. So there's a number of different ways in which we try to explain cultural patterns. The most fundamental is that we look for relationships or associations, and then we try to determine what causes what. For instance, does uh, frequent starvation cause human sacrifice? Does one thing lead to another? And if we find that there's an association, we try to engage in statistical tests that allow us to determine whether or not these associations are 
truly causally related? Is there an underlying law that is present here? And if not, is there some strong statistical association that begs explanation in terms of why one factor contributes to another? If we find these kinds of principles, what we then do is develop theories. For instance, at one point there was a theory out there that tried to explain Aztec human sacrifice as a consequence of protein deficiency. The idea was the Aztecs didn't have domestic animals. They didn't have cows and pigs and chickens. And one person proposed that this was, in essence, an effort to get enough protein. Was it true? Well, they tried to argue it on the basis of all the different protein limitations the Aztecs faced, and then somebody else came along and pointed all the different protein sources that the Aztecs had. Well, who was right here? It was difficult to sort that out based upon the study of one culture. So what anthropologists tried to do in the context of cross-cultural studies is operationalize their approaches to studying a phenomena. What do we mean by human sacrifice? You know, is the Donner Party engaged in human sacrifice? Most approaches to human sacrifice would say no. That's just desperation cannibalism. This doesn't count as human sacrifice. You know, sending troops off to die in Iraq, human sacrifice? Anthony Paredes might say yes, but most of us would say, no, this doesn't have anything to do with human sacrifice. You know, is laying somebody up on an altar and tearing their heart out and offering it to a god, is that human sacrifice? Yeah, we'll count that one as human sacrifice. So in the standard cross-cultural sample, we create a bunch of procedures for measuring things. For instance, in my dissertation research, I studied religious practices. I created more than 100 different variables to represent religious practices. And along with those 100 different variables were about 40 pages of instructions that said how you operationalize, coded for each one of these variables based upon reading the relevant ethnographies. Given that anthropologists endorse this notion of relative objectivity, how do we deal with the idea of proof and scientific proof? Well, mostly we point out that science never proves anything in the first place. If you really look at what science does, science is not based upon the assumption that we prove theories. Instead, the fundamental approach that scientists take is the idea that we falsify theories. We have an idea, and then we try to collect data that shows that that idea is wrong. Of course, just because we can't prove it's wrong doesn't mean it's right. There's lots of good theories out there that are probably true in some sense that have falsifying data against them. And there are lots of theories that are probably wrong for which someone has constructed an experiment that shows that these kinds of relationships exist. So given that we live in this world in which we construct our knowledge, how is it that we can create, once again, more objective, relatively objective knowledge of the world? Well, the basic principle that anthropologists endorse is this notion of triangulation. We use more than just one point of view. We try to get several different perspectives, several different kinds of data that help put together the whole picture. What we recognize is that when you're creating scientific theories, you don't get science out of a statistical relationship. You don't find truth in the bottom of a test tube. What is true is what's useful for human groups, and it requires combining lots of different kinds of data. So let me give you an example of how I've approached this issue within the context of what to many people is a very disturbing question. Is there a cause of institutionalized human sacrifice? 
the Aztecs, for instance, carried out wars not to kill people, but to capture them, to sacrifice them. They, on some occasions, may have sacrificed as many as 20,000 people in a single ritual spanning several days. In most cases, it appears that these bodies were consumed. The priests got certain parts, you know, the warriors got certain parts, the local people got certain parts, there were even the leftovers were fed to animals in the zoo. Why did the Aztecs do this on such an unprecedented scale? Well, they had a very simple answer. Our gods demand human sacrifice. At one level, that may be a satisfying answer. It's their belief system. But that begs the question of, well, why did they develop these beliefs and other people didn't? Is there something in particular that led the Aztecs to do this? Well, one of the early hypotheses was that this had to do with protein deficiency. The Aztecs didn't have enough meat, so humans became part of the food chain. Well, the cross-cultural method allows us to examine this. We can get data from a number of different cultures. Look at whether or not they have human sacrifice. Find out whether or not they face frequent starvation. Find out whether or not they're protein deficient. If you do that, what you will find is that the cultures that have human sacrifice are not in particular risk of starvation. They tend to have excellent trade networks and they store food for long periods of time. And in general, they don't appear to be protein deficient. They tend to have access to a variety of different protein sources. So one of the useful aspects of this cross-cultural method is that it takes the question from they didn't have enough protein, they did have enough protein, to a broader cross-cultural perspective that says the protein hypothesis doesn't pan out. There are lots of cultures where people don't have enough protein and they don't sacrifice human beings, and the cultures that do sacrifice human beings are not low on the protein scale. So what does cause institutionalized human sacrifice? Well, I used data from my dissertation to analyze this question. When I had done my dissertation research, I was focused on religious practices. And one of the variables I had coded was human sacrifice. I didn't make much of it in my study, but years later, somebody came to me and said, you know, we're finding evidence of human sacrifice here in the Southwest. We're wondering why this happened. Do you want to look at it from a cross-cultural perspective? So I pulled my data out, which only had human sacrifice, and then I had access to hundreds of variables in the standard cross-cultural sample. And so then I started screening. And I actually found dozens of variables that are significantly correlated with human sacrifice. But then the question became, which ones are the significant predictors? So using a variety of different methods, such as a multiple linear regression and binary logistic regression, I was able to identify two very specific kinds of conditions that are associated with societies that practice human sacrifice. They face high levels of ecological circumscription, which is to say they don't have any room to expand. They are surrounded either by other people or they're surrounded by deserts and mountains. They can't move elsewhere. So they can't increase their food resources. They engage in war to take food from other people. I also discovered that among a lot of different political variables, one ended up being most significant. And this is what's called uh, alliances and confederacies as the highest level of political integration. Later on, we'll look at political integration. What I'll briefly suggest for now is that 
societies that have human sacrifice fall somewhere between chiefdoms that basically control their own people and states that effectively integrate lots of different cultures, lots of different people. Why might human sacrifice occur at this level of uh, social complexity? Well, there's been a number of different people who have commented upon uh, what they have noted as this kind of uh, political instability in societies that practice human sacrifice. And the uh, Aztecs are a good exemplification of this. Uh, the Aztecs had only been in power a little over 100 years or so when the Spanish showed up. They had come in as mercenaries and basically decapitated the existing political system and took over it. And they managed to stay in power through alliances with lots of other people. But a lot of their alliances were based upon intimidation and fear. Uh, the Aztecs had a basic principle. They sacrificed and cannibalized their enemies. But they didn't do that to their friends. So, do you want to be my friend? Or do you want to be my enemy? We can see human sacrifice as being a, a tool of intimidation. In fact, in one case reported, um, as part of an alliance, one of the chiefs gave the Aztec leader one of his daughters as a wife. They planned this great big marriage ceremony. The woman is handed over. She's being taken back to be prepared for the wedding. And a little bit later, the priests come out. They're dressed in her skin. They strangled and flayed her and then put her, their skin over her body and went and danced in front of her father. I mean, imagine the kind of horror and terror that that induces in a person. So perhaps one of the reasons that human sacrifice emerges is that under certain circumstances, it sort of creates a, a balance of terror. And it's an important way of intimidating other people. I've presented on this research in conferences and published part of it. And I'll, in one case, somebody came up to me and said, you know, remember Idi Amin, Uganda? That's exactly what happened there. The political systems collapsed, and he started cannibalizing his enemies. Do you want to be my friend, or do you want to be my enemy? So these kinds of dynamics may still have relevance for understanding the world that we live in today. So while anthropology is characterized by the ethnographic approach, we should view it really as just being part of the anthropologist's toolkit. We try to base our observations and an ethnographic grounding, understanding what's going on in the local culture from the perspective of the local people. But we don't stop there. We use many other tools, sometimes informal interviews, sometimes formal surveys. Uh, we may often rely upon written sources of information. For instance, I've recently wrote a book about a political revolution in Mexico. And one of the sources of information I used were the archives of the local newspaper. I wanted to see how the local government-controlled newspapers were portraying this revolution. And so this was an important source of information. Uh, we may use historical documents. Some anthropologists go and study the archives that Spain used to collect during their colonial endeavors. And of course, we may use cross-cultural data, as I have exemplified here in this study of sacrifice, although it's not one of the prevalent forms of anthropological engagement with studies. In general, we're very interdisciplinary in our approaches. You might think about the protein deficiency hypothesis of human sacrifice as really being a nutritional or dietary theory about sacrifice, not something that's inherently cultural. 
So we borrow from many different perspectives and trying to construct a, a more complex, a more holistic understanding of culture and cultural behavior. So to summarize this lecture, to anthropologists, cultural relativism is not a philosophy, it's a reality. We're generally not cultural relativists in our personal lives. We have morals, we have values, we have beliefs, we think they're important, we stick by them. But when we try to understand others, we try to suspend or bracket those beliefs to keep them from getting in the way of understanding the other. We recognize that ethnocentrism is a reality and allows us to change some of the current political correct perspectives on not being prejudiced and not being discriminatory to instead emphasize we need to be aware of our prejudices, our discriminations. We need to recognize them rather than deny them. We engage in this challenge of cultural embeddedness. How do we get inside the cultures of other people? Recognizing the limitations of our own prior socialization, our language, our beliefs. One of the fundamental tools we have for doing this is portraying the emic perspective. So one of the traditions that has become popular in anthropology in recent years is allowing the so-called natives to speak for themselves, extended interviews in which we then present their points of view. One of the challenges that anthropologists has always engaged is what's universal about humans and what's particular? Can we understand humanity in terms of their universal perspectives? When we engage in a study of universals, what we typically encounter is a recognition that whatever is universal is also variant. The family is universal, it takes many different forms. Marriage is universal, it takes many different forms. So we try to develop laws of human culture that by necessity require a cross-cultural perspective. We try to understand what's true of human behavior relative to certain conditions. Do certain ecological conditions produce certain kinds of cultural dynamics? Do certain kinds of political conditions produce certain kinds of cultural dynamics? And so since we're asking about the causes of diverse aspects of culture, from nutrition on one hand through religious beliefs on the other, anthropology by necessity is an interdisciplinary science that utilizes a lot of different methods and data from other scientific disciplines as well to try to understand why it is that human beings behave the way that they do.